we're in Romans chapter 9. We're just closing out the chapter. Some of you are saying, finally. So that's, that's, all right. that's all right. But turn your hearts to Romans chapter 9. And I just want to read for us verses 30 to 33. We'll just be covering these chapters this morning. Paul writes there, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, it's, it's always interesting how God arranges things. And I didn't talk to Joe. I don't know if he knew what I was preaching on or not. But when he read First <laughs> Peter, I thought, wow, this is great. It's a wonderful setup for what we're going to talk about this morning. And so that was a real, real blessing. Joe, I appreciate you listening to the Spirit and reading that. Um, but if you were to ask the normal person today, um, you know, today we want to talk about a stumbling stone or a cornerstone. Who do you view Christ as? If you were to ask the normal person today, just the everyday Joe, Mary on the street, how does a person get into heaven? You would often hear, I would say more times than not, by being a good person. That's what they're going to say. I mean, unless they're a Christian, pretty much that's the default answer. Um, There may be a lot of different variations to that. Well, you know, I just think you got to do your best, and in the end, got to work it all out. Um, maybe some people might say you have to be moral, you have to be religious. Uh, maybe you have to help the poor, you have to do some good works along the way, and hopefully God will sort all that out in the end. And you'll, you'll find the same answers, not just here in the United States, but any country you go in, anywhere. When you ask somebody, how do you get into heaven? Why do you think you should go to heaven? And I, I remember when we were in, in, in India and we were, um, I forget where we were at actually, but we were in this um, uh, shop and I think they, what did they sell, marble or something? What did they sell? Uh, where we talked to all those guys, like five or six gentlemen. I think it was when we went to the, the, the Taj Mahal on the way to the, ta- no, it was the Taj Mahal. We were going to the Taj Mahal and um, we were uh, looking at, at some different uh, items that they made there. And these these three or four men were excited to have tourists there because tourists spend money. Uh, they didn't know we didn't have a whole lot of money to spend. But anyway, so they, they were very gracious with us. But I remember talking to several of them. And they were, you know, once they kind of figured out what we were doing and what we were doing in the country, um, they were kind of uh, interested in that. And I remember talking to several of them in in inevitably when we asked them you know do you think you would go to heaven the answer was oh yeah yeah i'm a you know i'm this i'm that and they stated some of them were catholic some of them were um uh, from different backgrounds and but they all ended up saying the same thing they think that basically in the end somehow god is going to sort this out and he's going to take into consideration everything that they've done and that doesn't matter beloved whether you're talking to a buddhist monk or an uh, iman from the Muslim faith, uh, from Islam, whatever. I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, they all say the same thing. 
When you talk to uh, an Islamic uh, person of, of that background, they say, well, they recite the Quran, they memorize the Quran, they do the, you know, the prayers five times a day, they give alms, they do all this stuff. Uh, we just came out of the fast and the, the feast of Ramadan. That's a big holy time for them. Um, you know, a lot of them, they'll make this pilgrimage to Mecca. On the plane coming back from India, I remember there was a lady on the plane and, and they were, they had this little book and they were writing all this. And, and I thought, I wonder what they're doing. And, and they started to talk amongst themselves. And here they were on some um, spiritual journey and they went to India to meet with, up with some Raj, somebody, I don't know what it was. And, but I mean, they just, they just felt so um, in touch spiritually with all this stuff because they made this pilgrimage and they did all this stuff and they bathed in the river and you know by the way the river is just putrefying I don't know who would do that so that's a step of faith in and of itself I give them credit there but in the long run it doesn't do any good okay it just doesn't do any good um, but that approach to God is not just limited to those who are outside of Christ those who are non-Christians um, it's not just limited to the non-Christian religions and the cults, uh, but there's a lot of Christian religions that think somehow they can earn their right standing before a holy God by going to mass or by going to a confession or by doing good works or, or sometimes even receiving harsh treatment to their bodies. I think it was Martin Luther himself uh, who's a good example of this. He gave up a career in law to join a monastery early on before he knew Christ. And he devoted himself to all these prayers and all this fasting, Dependence. He'd sleep in this cold room on a hard board. And they did all that because they thought, well, this is earning God's favor. They, they self-imposed all these harsh conditions among, on themselves, thinking that somehow God is impressed by all that. He was trying to earn his salvation. He was trying to earn it by works. But you know what? In the end, he tells us he could not even find peace with God because he knew that his works were all tainted by sin. Because he knew in the heart, in his deepest recesses, he was a sinner. And no matter how much good he did, that sin was still there. I mean, can you imagine what a tragedy it's going to be for some people that devote their whole lives to living a life of self-deprivement and, and harsh treatment and, and, and maybe just you know, pulling yourself away from everything that's enjoyable, thinking that somehow that's earning you favor with God and they stand before God one day and God says, you know what, depart. I don't even know who you are. And while they're standing there getting ready to depart, some guy who's been a thief all his life Hasn't done one good work. And his last dying breath cried out to Christ and said, remember me. And the door opens to heaven and he walks right past the other guy and walks right in. Can you imagine the devastation that you would feel when you find yourself in that situation? I would not want to be there. I would not want to be that person who's turned away from the gates of heaven to face God's righteous judgment. Just because you spent your entire life in religious discipline, denying yourself of all the common pleasures, being a good person, all that, but you stand at the gate of heaven and Jesus refuses you. 
I think that we need to take to heart what Paul is saying here in Romans. Because the last time I checked, this life is short and eternity is forever. So if you're going to get anything right in life, you might want to spend a little time focusing on what happens when you die. It's a good thing to focus on. It's a good thing to be ready for that time. I mean, nothing is more important, beloved, than having the proper understanding of having the right way to be right with God. And when you don't have that, when you are missing that, when you're focusing on the wrong way, a way maybe that you conjured up in your own mind or a way maybe your religion is conjured up and you think, well, I'm just going to do it this way. Guaranteed, that's the wrong way. There's only one way to God, and that's through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since both fallen human nature and every really world religion is teaching the wrong way to God, we especially as believers need to understand God's way of righteousness. We need to understand how to explain that to people. And Paul addresses this critical issue in our text. That's why he says there in verse 30, what shall we say then? It serves both as that conclusion from the preceding argument, and he's getting into this new section. And really, verses 30 and 33 kind of go along with chapter 10 more than they go along with the rest of chapter 9. Remember, the little numbers and the the chapter divisions weren't there in the original. They were just put in there for our convenience. And so the question that Paul has been focusing on here in the book of Romans is simply this, especially Romans 9, is if God is faithful to his covenant promises to his chosen people, then why are most Jews rejecting Jesus as their Messiah and Lord? That's the question his readers were asking. And Paul has shown that it was never God's purpose to save all of Israel, every individual Israeli but rather only a remnant. And we've gone over that in the previous studies. But God always accomplishes his purpose through a chosen remnant, according to his grace. And this is kind of just review from last week. But since we all deserve God's wrath, we all deserve God's judgment because of our sin, it is not unfair of him for his glory to choose some as objects of mercy, but to leave the rest in their sins, and to glorify his justice and judgment. That's called the doctrine of election and the doctrine of reprobation, and we studied those. And Romans chapter 9 is really heavy toward an understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. That's what we've been focusing on. We're celebrating God's sovereignty. But there's a mystery in all this. Um, because the Bible is clear that if we're saved, it's totally due to God's sovereign grace and his mercy. The Bible clearly says that. But if we're lost, the Bible says it's totally due to our sin and unbelief. And I don't know about you, but if you think about that, those, it seems like an oxymoron. It seems like something that it's, it's, it can't be true. No one's going to be able to in heaven or in hell one day, blame God for being lost. They're not going to point their finger at God and say, you know what? I'm down here because you didn't choose me, God. No, they're going to be down there because of their sin. They're going to be down there because of their unbelief. 
When you start to talk to people about these, those two doctrines, it's interesting that many people who deny the doctrine of election because it really offends their pride, they want to think that they have something to do with it. They want to think that they can choose God by their own free will. But if you tell them that they're headed for judgment, all of a sudden they switch and they start to believe in the doctrine of election. And then they say, well, well wait a minute. If that's true, then, then I'm going to be in hell one day and I'm going to blame God because he didn't choose me. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I thought you said you didn't believe in that. So they, they kind of switch all around. And so from Romans chapter 9, verse 30, all the way into chapter 10, verse 21, you can study that this next week, Paul shows us why the Jews, for the most part, are rejecting Christ. They were trying to be saved by their own good works. And in doing so, they stumbled over God's path of salvation, the cornerstone, Christ. They stumbled over Christ. They missed God's way of righteousness through faith in Christ. So the emphasis is on human responsibility, on sin. And Israel rejected Christ because they were disobedient and obstinate. Look at verse 21 of chapter 10, because Paul just states it right there in one sentence. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a what? Disobedient and contrary, contrary people. And yet God's sovereignty is still present. It's he who put the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense in Zion. Notice that in verse 33 of chapter 9. He says, behold, I, who's I? God. I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. So God is the one placing this stumbling stone in their path. He's the one placing this rock of offense there. It is God's sovereign plan to use salvation of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. See, they were God's chosen people, but they were disobedient. They were unbelieving. They rejected God's way. And so God says, okay, you know what? If you're not going to listen, I'm, I'm going I'm to share the gospel with these folks over here. These Gentiles that you consider dogs and pigs, they're going to get saved. And when that begins to happen, what happened to Israel? Hey, wait a minute. What do you mean, Paul? They're, they're chosen too? And they were offended by that truth. And so God created this sovereign plan to use the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy so that they would eventually turn to Christ. Look at what it says in in verse 19 of chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. The Gentiles. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Look over at verse 11 of chapter 11. Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 11, Romans, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? So as to make Israel jealous. And then also in verse 14. Verse 13, he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Look at what it says in verse 14 of Romans 11. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save 
some. God has a purpose. He has a plan. He's not just up in heaven, kind of willy-nilly picking people for heaven. That's not his plan. God's sovereignty is seen by the fact that all of this was basically set up and predicated in the Old Testament. It was, it was predicted in the Old Testament. And, and we went through all that. But in our text here, Paul lays out basically the proper way and the wrong way to come to God. To to approach God through our works will cause us to stumble over Christ and be lost. That's the wrong way. To approach God through our works will cause us to stumble over Christ and be lost. You'll get so caught up in doing good works that you'll, you'll forget about the Savior. The right way is the second part of that statement. To approach God through faith in Christ results in righteousness and salvation. I mean, there's, there's a massive contrast there. If we pursue the righteousness that we need to stand before God on our own by our works, we will fail. Without question. It, it doesn't work that way. You can try it till the cows come home, but you know what? God will not accept those works. No matter how diligent you are, no matter how thorough you are, no matter how holy you think you're living, if that's what you're trusting in and you're pursuing the righteousness of God, by that means you will fail. But if you come to God by faith in Christ, the Bible says that we attain righteousness. He gives us righteousness. He imputes the righteousness of Christ on our account. Even if we were not previously pursuing it. God doesn't say, you know what? Okay, I want you to pursue me for 10 years and then I'll save you. Or pursue me for a good 15 years and then I'll save you. That's never the case. How many of us have been saved just out of the, out of the blue? We didn't know what was going on in our life before that. We weren't maybe not bad people or whatever, but we were lost. You know, we were lost in our sins. And all of a sudden, God opens our eyes and we realize, wow, we need a Savior. And we come to Christ and we're gloriously saved. We're transformed by the power of His Spirit. And we don't say, yeah, you know, this was, this was my, my, my lifelong faith journey and I finally arrived. I found it. I found the truth. You know, maybe there's some people that are on a lifelong journey, but most people are not. Most people are just kind of doing what comes natural. Sin. And they're happy in their sin. And so when you come along and you say, you know, don't you, don't you want to have a happy life? And people say, well, I'm pretty happy. You know, I got money in the bank, got a house over my head, I got a job, I got, you know. See, that's the wrong avenue to take when you're sharing Christ. They need to see their own sinful state before God. So if we come to God by faith in Christ, we attain righteousness even though we weren't even looking for it. We weren't pursuing it. And that's called the grace of God. That's called God's mercy. But I want to kind of point out something before we even get into this this morning. Because maybe a lot of you were raised in a Christian home or maybe you raised your children in a Christian home. Nothing wrong with that. That's a wonderful thing. 
you know, there's a lot of advantages to be raised in a Christian home. I was raised in kind of a, a maybe a, a, a semi-Christian home. It was a Catholic home, so they didn't have the real gospel, but at least I had some understanding of who God was and things like that. But a lot of people were raised in a Christian home, and what happens is you learn a lot about God. And you learn a lot about the way of salvation, even as a young child. Uh, you're often spared from the destructive scars of sin of those who maybe were not raised in a Christian home. But I'll say this, the danger in being raised in a Christian home is that we have a tendency, just our human tendency, is to trust in our own religiosity, to trust in our own morality, while resenting or despising those who are not so religious or so moral. We make a judgment call. And all of a sudden, the comparison is between us and the neighbor next door. Well, we go to church every Sunday. You know, his car's still there. He's out washing his car when we're driving to church. What a pagan he is. And we make these judgment calls on people. And we feel pretty good about ourselves. We become like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, right? Remember what he said, Luke 15? He said, I've served you for years to his dad. I've always obeyed you. But then you, you put your love on this no good brother of mine. But what have you ever done for me? And that cynicism creeps in. And so we miss the heart of the gospel, which is by God's grace. The first point here is to approach God through our works is built on faith in ourselves. If we're trying to approach God by our works, we're, we're thinking pretty good things about ourselves. We have faith in ourselves. Somehow we're going to pull this out in the end. And you know what? It's going to cause us to stumble over Christ, over the plan that God has given, over the, 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 the Savior that God has given us, and we'll face judgment. A lot of scholars write and talk a lot about what Paul means here when he writes there a law of righteousness. You can, you can find all kinds of things written. But it probably refers to the law of Moses that Israel pursued to try to attain righteousness before God. God gave them the law and they misunderstood that. It's like, okay, well, this is the do's and the don'ts. If we do the do's and the don'ts, then God will like us. That's not why God gave us the law. He never gave us the law to try to keep it. I mean, we can't. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. You know, when's the last time you broke one of the Ten Commandments? I mean, we, we don't keep the Ten Commandments. We try, maybe, but we don't keep them perfectly. Nobody ever can. There's a lot more than just Ten Commandments, beloved. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we're just going easy when we look at the Ten Commandments. See, God gave us the law. He gave Israel the law to show them their inability to keep it. He didn't say, here, if you do this, we're good. <laughs> he gave them the law to show them that, wow, there's no way you could do this. What do I do? I need somebody to get me out of this mess because I can't do all this. 
See, they were trying to establish, it says in verse 3 of chapter 10, their own righteousness. And a lot of times, even believers in the church fall into that, that trap of trying to establish their own righteousness. And the way, it, the way it plays out in a local church is basically you end up with a church that's not very transparent with each other. Everybody's got the little pasty smile on, you know, how's everything? Fine, fine, you know. You know, they're not telling you the truth. I mean, they just got in a knockdown, drag out fight at home, you know. But, oh, they come to church, everything's fine. Oh, praise the Lord, you know. It's time we begin to be a little more transparent with each other. Because when that happens, what happens? I mean, there's, there's, there's so many benefits to that. First of all, you, you don't really feel that, that self-righteousness anymore because you realize you're, you're really, in the end, just like everybody else. But it also offers you encouragement. I mean, there's been a lot of times I've, I've talked to other men in our church about marriage issues, about kids and things like that. And you know what? I've grown as a result of them saying, look, whatever you do, don't do this. They were transparent. They were willing to share their failures with me. And I felt comforted by that. If there's any place you don't need to be threatened, it's in the local church. We should be able to get along fine with each other. Because we're all in the same boat. We're all saved sinners that need the grace of God each and every day. This wrong approach caused Israel to stumble over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Christ. Right? To approach God through our works is fundamentally flawed because it is built on faith in our sinful selves. I mean, I just, I just bite my tongue sometimes when you know, I'll be in the coffee shop or whatever and I'll hear some people talking at another table and you know, they'll start talking about whatever, you know, counseling they're going through, whatever. And I hear this come up all the time, you know. I'm just so glad, you know. The counselor just told me, you know, I really need to believe in myself. I just really need to have a better attitude about myself. I've got to believe in myself. And if I just believe in myself, then you know what? Then all these issues that just magically go away. I need a, a better self-esteem. I mean, even books on Christian parenting tell us that we need to teach our kids to believe in themselves. I've read them. To have self-confidence. There's nothing wrong with being competent at your job or competent in your profession and knowing that you are and because of hard work. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's where all your confidence lies, you've got a problem as a believer. Show me anywhere in the Bible, in God's word, the book that we hold to be the truth, where does it tell us to have faith in ourselves? When you find that verse, let me know. It constantly tells us that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. Absolutely nothing. Rather, we need to cast ourselves totally upon the dependence in and on God. Faith in yourself is a fundamental problem when it comes to believing the gospel. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus himself said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Believe in yourself? What's he say? He must deny himself. 
That's like the polar opposite. Take up his cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. So you have to deny yourself to the point of death. And believing in yourself is the total opposite of that. So those who try to, co- try to come to God by works underestimate or are blind to their own sinfulness. They don't understand it. They think that they have something in themselves that God will commend them for. But the Bible says clearly in Isaiah 6, 64, 6, I think it is, it says that we, that all of our works, that we're unclean, that all of our works, all of our, our works are like, our good works are like what? Filthy rags, it says, in God's sight. Why? Because they're all built on our pride. And even if we could present to God more good works than anyone else in the world, we would have a huge problem, our own sin. How can a pile of filthy rags cover the leprosy of sin? To try to approach God through our works is fundamentally flawed because it is built on faith in our sinful selves. But there's another problem when you go to this approach. The second one there is to approach God through our good works will cause us to stumble over Christ. That's what he says there in verse 32 B through 33 of chapter 9. They stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Or that word literally means put to shame. When you stop and think about this word stone, the theme occurs in the Old Testament over, and you can look at those texts there. We're not going to take time this morning. It also occurs in the New Testament, even off the lips of Jesus. Well, here Paul combines Isaiah 28.16 and Isaiah 6.14. Isaiah 28.16 reads this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly stone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Or literally it means be in a hurry. Isaiah 8.14 says, Then he shall become a sanctuary, both but to both the house, houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So Paul takes both of those verses. He takes Isaiah 8.14 on judgment and he removes the middle of Isaiah 28.16 on the costly cornerstone and he sandwiches in 8.14. Well, there's a couple things here. First of all, God sovereignly put the stumbling stone in Israel. He did it. But you know what? They're held account. They're held responsible for stumbling over it. The second thing we see is that Paul is not playing kind of loosey-goosey here with Scripture. Rather, he's showing how these two texts fit together. And they point to Christ. Isaiah 8.14 passage shows that the Lord himself is a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. But in Isaiah 28.16, the Lord puts the stone in place as a cornerstone to build upon. You might ask, how can the, the Lord be both the stone itself and yet the one who puts the stone in place? The answer is easy. The Messiah is the Lord God. He is God. 
And so by combining those two texts on judgment and the other text on hope, Paul shows that, that Christ the Lord is both the hope of salvation for those who built their lives on him, and yet at the same time he's the rock of stumbling and the stone of offense for those who take pride in their own works. It, it, it accomplishes both tasks. And then the third thing here in Romans 9.33, we know that that refers to Christ. And it's obvious that the faith that attains to righteousness, which the Gentiles attained to, they got saved, but Israel did not, is the faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. This is the faith that justifies, which Paul elaborated on all the way back in Romans chapter 3, verses 21. So he who believes in him, it says, will not be disappointed. The Hebrew literally reads, will not be in a hurry. What is he talking about? What's that mean? The idea is simply this, is that he will not flee from his enemies in haste. His trust is in God. God's going to protect him. The idea of not being disappointed or ashamed refers to not hearing a negative verdict in judgment, so the ideas are kind of similar. The one who believes in Jesus as a foundation stone will not fear being condemned at judgment. But how is Jesus Christ a stumbling stone to unbelievers? How does that work? If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it kind of, Paul lines it out here for us. In verses 18 to 31, he says, For the word, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called... Effectually, those who will be saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose who? What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being, why did you do this, God? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus You became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast where? In the Lord. It's very clear. The reason that unbelievers stumble over Christ is because 
It's a humiliating doctrine. The idea that you have no part in your salvation. The idea that you're basically responding to God's call. He's the one that's saving you. You're not figuring this this thing out. A crucified Savior confounds our idea of what the Savior should be. Israel was looking for a powerful king. Israel was looking for the son of David, born of nobility. Who, like him, would, would conquer all of the enemies for Israel. The religious leaders thought that surely he would be educated in the scriptures and traditions as they were. He would not be some common man. He wouldn't be some carpenter who lived in this despised city of Nazareth. That's for sure. And those who would follow the Messiah would be religious leaders and they would be men of wisdom and learning and they would be connected with those in power. Surely, the followers of the Messiah would not be tax gatherers and prostitutes. Or if a few of of this riff-raff got into the kingdom, they would occupy the lowly place at the door. They would be the ones washing the feet. But the religious leaders, those who are wise, would be at the place of honor, at the Messiah's side. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he goes on to point out that not many Corinthian believers were wise, as we read. I mean, perhaps you're wondering, why would God deliberately place a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense in Zion? Why would he give the world a a lowly crucified Savior and the way of salvation that causes many to be offended? Why would God ever do such a thing? Well, James Boyce points this out. He says, this wasn't the way of a modern advertising executive would devise a campaign campaign to sell the gospel. Show people how Jesus will help them succeed at work and have happy lives, happy families. Show them how Jesus will help them reach their full potential. Minimize all the, the negative stuff about sin and judgment. What people need is positive, uplifting message to build their self-esteem. I mean, you're thinking I'm, I'm quoting Joel Olstein. I'm not, by the way, but I could be. But the reason the true gospel is inherently offensive is because it it confronts our pride, our sinful pride. So we need to be reminded of that. Well, the second point here in closing here quickly is that to approach God through faith in Christ results in perfect righteousness and salvation. So we had the negative way. If you want to approach it through the works, it's it's a no-win situation. But if you do it through faith in Christ, it results in perfect righteousness and completed salvation. Look at verse 30. He says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they attained it. They weren't even looking for righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by faith. And then the the end of verse 33 there, he says, And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 
See, Paul is contrasting the righteousness that comes by faith with the attempt to achieve righteousness by the works of the law. That's what he's trying to point out. And it takes us all the way back to the discussion that we had in, 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 in chapters 3 and 4. We're saved by faith. And the first thought here is we need a perfect righteousness which only comes through faith in Christ. I mean, clearly the righteousness of God is Paul's theme here. He repeats it four times in our text. He's referring to that perfect righteousness of God, which he spoke about in chapter 1, verse 17, where he wrote, and in it, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. But after showing the, the sinfulness both of the Gentiles and the Jews, Paul concludes in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why God gave the law. He didn't give the law to save us. You can't be right with God by keeping his law because we fail to keep it perfectly. I mean, I'm always amazed. We're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. We're told to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You know what? We're all guilty of not doing those things. Just plain and simple. But here, Paul kind of gets to the point And he's saying, basically, salvation by human righteousness always falls short. We need a righteousness that can come by and from God. And the only way we can get that is that he gives us, he imputes his righteousness on us. And he does it by his grace and mercy. He doesn't look at us and say, well, there's a little righteousness there. I'll give him the righteousness of Christ. Well, that guy has no righteousness. I'm not going to. (laughs) No. That's why the Bible says he does it before the foundation of the world. God graciously sought these Gentiles with the good news that Christ came into the world to save sinners. They knew that they fit the description of a sinner and they needed salvation, so they believed in Christ and they were justified. Well, the second thing here is to come to God through faith, we must renounce our merit and our works-based basis for approaching God. We can't bring our best effort. We can't combine them with the righteousness of Christ. It's not, God doesn't look at it and go, okay, will you bring what you can and I'll make up the difference? No. We have nothing to bring to the table. We come totally empty-handed. That's why when you come to Christ, you have to be at the bottom. You have to recognize that you have nowhere else to go. To follow Christ means that we deny ourselves, especially deny our self-righteousness and our good deeds as a basis for our right standing before God. Last time I checked, salvation is not a joint project where we try hard and God does the rest. It doesn't work out that way. It's all of God. The third thing here, to come to God through faith, we must entrust our right standing with God totally to our merits to the merits and substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We have to look at the cross of Christ and say, you know what? That's the answer. The answer is that Christ died, that he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross. He was buried. He rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. He is the Savior. 
So if I want to be saved, I have to come to Christ. I have to bow the knee to Christ. I have to confess that he is Lord. John Calvin expressed this this way in one of his commentaries. He says, but how they stumble at Christ who trust in their works. It is not difficult to understand. For except we own ourselves to be sinners, void and destitute of any righteousness of our own, we obscure the dignity of Christ, which consists in this. That to us, all he is light, life, resurrection, righteousness, and healing. But how is he all these things except that he illuminates the blind? He restores the lost. He quickens the dead. He raises up those who are reduced to nothing. Cleanses those who are full of filth. Cures and heals those infected with diseases. Nay, when we claim for ourselves any righteousness We in a manner contend with the power of Christ. For his office is no less to beat down all the pride of the flesh than to relieve and comfort those who labor and are wearied by their burden. See, either Christ is one or the other, beloved. He's either a rock in which you believe and you build your life upon who will justify you on that judgment day to come. Or you know what? He's a rock of stumbling. He's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense because of your sinful pride. I plead with you this morning, don't stumble over Christ the Savior by trusting in your own good works to save you. As all the rest of the world's religions teach, trust in Christ and Christ alone, and you will not be ashamed at the judgment. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that in our sin, you didn't just leave us there, that you provided a way out. And the way out is, there's just one way. It's through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that gave up glory. He's the one that came down here and put on a a human body. He's the one that lived a perfect life in the flesh here on this earth. He's the one that went to the cross, died a horrendous death. He's the one that had to deal with the, 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 the spiritual separation somehow between you and him. You turned your back on your own son. That's hard to believe. Don't understand it, but that's what the word says. When he was weighed down with the the sin of all those who would ever put their, their faith in his work on the cross, he paid for our sins individually. And not only that, Lord, when he was buried, he, he rose from the grave on the third day. And he, he rose victorious over sin and death. So we don't just have another religious option here. We have the only option to put our faith and trust in. There is nowhere, no other Savior to go to. So we come before you broken in our sin. And we cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's that prayer that will save us. Father, we pray that you enable those who have yet to believe to cry out to you in faith even this morning. That you will transform their lives. That you will forgive their sin. Give them the joy of salvation that can only come through Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.